who started her career by taking photos of beatniks at Grove Press and eventually transitioned to large-format Polaroids. I spoke with Morris about the film the day after the second presidential debate, and the nastiness of our current political climate inevitably came up. And so our discussion of documentary technique turned into a course on advanced Trumpology. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Errol Morris. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me here. So with the B-side, other people have commented on this, and that's totally true. This is sort of a departure for you in terms of subject matter. And it's also a little bit of a departure in terms of the camera and interview setup you have. Instead of these uh, ellipses or fade to blacks, it's a multi-camera setup where you know, you're sort of jumping between angles and it's seamless. So could you talk about what motivated that switch and also just it's also a little bit of a departure because you're shooting inside her studio as opposed to behind a sort of neutral backdrop no other reason than i got tired of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again Mm. Um, i see my work endlessly imitated Mm -hmm. I suppose if I was less polite, I would say ripped off. (laughs) And I decided enough of that. I've done that. I certainly used the Interatron in lots of movies and in lots and lots and lots of commercials. So I thought, let's do something different, which started with my Netflix series, still unfinished. But I started shooting with multiple cameras. I had done something like that years ago. Uh, in a television series first person, but things have changed. Much harder to do it in those days. Digital technologies have developed to a point where you can actually put seven, eight, nine, ten cameras on one person, which is what I was doing. Yeah. A kind of collage Mm. of images. And so when we decided to do Elsa, I thought, let's do it more or less the same way. And I'll use this device called the Revolution. Mm. It's a device with mirrors, uh, right angle knuckle joints, motors. It's, in every sense of the word, a contraption. (laughs) And I used it for the Elsa shoot. I believed to good effect, which allowed me to interview Elsa and to operate one of the four cameras. How many cameras were there? Four. Four. One of the four cameras while I was doing the interview. Throughout the film, you know, you see a lot of her work and there's definitely a a decision to use negative sometimes versus printed photos. And I wonder, um, was that entirely motivated by just what she had or was it more aesthetically pleasing to sort of show the raw material? Well, she started off as a 35 millimeter black and white photographer. Mm -hmm. And yes, there were negatives. And she developed them in classic style. Mm -hmm in a dark room. 
she made prints. Right. But Polaroid is a completely different photographic process. Right. There is no negative. There's just the positive. Right. It comes out of the camera. You wipe off the chemicals and out pops the image as if by magic. You are a really great composer of images. And I don't always know if that's that's sort of harder to address. It's sort of harder to pin down. And I mean, are there photographers that you reference or go back to when you're, you know, preparing for a film or for, for this? Well, I love photography. And I had thought for years about doing a film or a group of films about photographers I just never did it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And Elsa lives virtually around the corner. She lives about a mile from me in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'd spent an afternoon with her probably 10 years ago in her garage where she keeps her flat files. And we went through Polaroid image after Polaroid image with Elsa telling stories. And it was pretty clear at that point, this is a movie. Right. Um, Elsa, the photograph, the story. And I think following on that, the film, you know, this, this documentary is sort of memento mori for the apparatus. Polaroids are no longer, you know, this is, she's retiring. The fact that photographs themselves are sort of a form of a memento mori, and then the film is dedicated to Anne Patron, one of your uh, producers, so it's sort of a memento mori in that respect as well. Was it just something that organically grew out of the material, or is it just something maybe that you're feeling as you grow older? Uh, There's certain things you don't really have to impose on material because it's already there. one of the oddities of photography is that you take a picture at a certain time in a certain place, and that place and that time are frozen. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, at the beginning of the photographic era in the 19th century, called photographs a, m- a mirror with a memory. So here you have this image that doesn't really change. Maybe it yellows, maybe it somehow decays with time. But in essence, the image is frozen, and then the world changes around it. The world gets older and older and older and older and older, with the photograph preserving some faithful image of the past. That fact alone people write endlessly about this sort of thing, is part of photography. It's one of the mysteries of photography. Somehow you can create something that is so lifelike, so real, and yet unapproachable, distant. And it becomes more and more distant as time goes on. And as it's a portrait, as the person who has had their portrait taken is no longer around. They're dead. Uh, but the photograph lives in some some sense, and they live in the photograph in some sense. This was your first collaboration with Paul Leonard Morgan on the music? Uh, the first, but not the last. Oh, excellent. <laughs> he's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> Will you... Um, and he's writing the Netflix series, too, okay. so... 
Um, Why mess around? Exactly. You find something you like. Because I remember in the Philip Glass documentary, you talk, you know, you're a cellist and you talk about, you know, playing Philip Glass's scores before or giving maybe, you know, giving him notes or sort of suggestions. Did you go through that process with Paul or did you just sort of like, you know, happy with what you had heard before and commissioned based on that or sort of had him compose based on that? I didn't really have time to torture him about the music. Mm. I mean, I sat with both Danny Elfman and Philip Glass while they've been writing mm -hmm. uh, music for my movies. But Paul was on his own. I guess now maybe we could talk a little bit about what we were talking about before. We're living in this, you know, so much of your, you know, you've written a bunch of stuff for the New York Times, um, you know, done original op docs like The Umbrella Man. And we live in this about, you know, what is truth? What is fact? And we live in this weird like post fact era or at least an era where facts have become like a political sort of a thing. And so what do you, I mean, what do you make of this new reality where it's like something can be true or not true based on your, if you're, you know, a Democrat or a Republican? I despise it. <laughs> um, is it really something new? I mean, people have always been misinformed, certainly. People are misinformed and always have been, or they lie, mm -hmm. or they don't care. It's hard to know. I, um, there was a device that my mother always used, and she would say, um, I will not tell you again to finish your dinner. And I would say, but Ma, you just did. You just <laughs> told me again to finish my dinner. And I remember fairly early on, I don't know how old I was, I tried to figure out what's the name of this logical device. And it has lots of different names, sometimes called catathesis, uh, paralypsis, prosleepsis, mm. blah, 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 blah. But the device is basically you announce that you are not going to do X. And then by announcing that fact, you do X. Yeah. And it was so much part and parcel of the debate that I heard last night. Mm -hmm. There's this fantastic essay about basically human duplicity and the avoidance of truth by Arthur Schopenhauer, one of my favorite essays and one of the funniest, most cynical essays ever written. Why wouldn't I love it? Right. <laughs> um, if there's any complaint, perhaps it's not cynical enough, but... It's called The Art of Controversy or The Art of Rhetoric. It's translated in different ways. Schopenhauer gives you ways to win an argument. He says there's two ways to win an argument, logic and dialectic. No one ever wins an argument through logic. We all know that. So let me give you some 40 ways to win an argument any way you possibly can. And you see it every day in political discourse. It's not about logic or reason. It most certainly is not about good taste. If it's like anything, it's like some grotesque food fight. No, it's um, it's funny. Like the McLaughlin group is no longer on the air, and it's not like John McLaughlin was the best person ever. But that show, it's sad that it's not on the air anymore because it really was sort of like the last bastion of people going beyond just talking points. Because if you watch Meet the Press, let's say, 
it's really just there's a question and then there's the answer doesn't necessarily the answer really doesn't have anything to do with what the question was. It's just sort of like, well, this is my talking point. This is what I you know, this is my party line. For someone watching that thing last night, I just couldn't understand. Well, my political beliefs should be obvious, but I couldn't understand why Hillary just wouldn't stop and say, this is unseemly. We're not even discussing anything. This is just embarrassing. It's embarrassing behavior, and I can't even see why I'm part of it. <laughs> but maybe that wouldn't work. I don't know. It's such a weird setup, the town hall format, where, you know, they're, this idea that, you know, they're going to sit and get up and walk around and interact with these people. And instead, it's just sort of like one person looming in f behind the other. Like, it's just, it became this weird, like, disgusting theater. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like to, like, sit, to be in that, like, those undecided voters. First, like, how, first of all, how could a, a Muslim woman be undecided in this election? Like, let's leave that aside for a second. But, like, that was, it was so... Uh, yeah, could, like you say, unseemly. How could anybody be undecided? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> After all this. There's the Hillary haters. Right. So there are people who hate Hillary so much that they can't imagine of voting for her. And maybe he seems to be a reasonable alternative. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't get it. Reasonable. Yeah, I don't get it. An, an alternative, maybe, at most. But I, I it's interesting because... It's a horror movie. It really, Last night really was a horror movie. There he was, looming. Yeah. She looked like she was three feet tall and he was nine feet tall <laughs> with heavy jowls um, leering yeah. uh, over her. Wherever she went, he would be coming from behind. Yeah. Like, it's a nightmare. Mm threatening yeah i'll prosecute you you're going to prison <laughs> someone pointed this out that happened in citizen kane which is of course donald trump's favorite movie you saw my piece yes you, you took go. that off your website i remember watching that a long time ago and now it's you've taken it offline why did you take I it offline? just put it back online why not because I do Opdocs all the time, I thought, well, let's put this up on Opdocs because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are readers of the New York Times who haven't seen my piece mm -hmm. um, uh, with Donald Trump on Citizen Kane. Easier said than done, I might add. Clearing all of the rights to make that possible, not so easy. And as... We reminded ourselves constantly, it's not as if Donald Trump is litigious. Right. <laughs> or, wait a second. <laughs> but the end of it is quite fabulous because I ask him, uh, do you have any advice for Charles Foster Kane? One of the truly great American movies, anti-fascist movies, warning about the dangers of fascism. What did Donald Trump learn from that movie do you have any advice for charles foster kane trump answers yes get yourself a different woman yes that's right yeah that's the problem the problem is the woman yes she because he he wants love and you know the 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 failed opera singer ain't giving it so i'm just get a new model literally literally <laughs>
<laughs> it was weird because that was something that I, it's definitely germane to the conversation. So it was, it was odd to see that it was, it had to be taken offline, but. He's gross. Really is. And you only talked to him through the Interatron. Did you actually like, were you actually ever in the same room with him? Yeah, we were in the same room. Oh. Because um, there was a green room and the green room had Donald Trump, Mikhail Gorbachev, Walter Cronkite, Iggy Pop, and Jesse Norman. <laughs> Jesse Norman. <laughs> Jesse Norman was there. <laughs> and I told her how much I liked her version of Strauss's last four songs. This is so weird. <laughs> and I talked to Mikhail Gorbachev about his favorite movie. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be, you can't make this stuff up. It turned out to be Tarkovsky. He oh. loves the mirror. Oh. So we talked about the mirror briefly. And then I asked him if he had ever seen Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> and he said, no, what is this strange love? <laughs> How do you explain <laughs> to Mikhail Gorbachev? Dr. Strangelove. Good question. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so are you, are you going to do like a Blu-ray release of this <laughs> material? I still, I still want to do it. I had this fantasy that I would do a version of Mystery Science Fiction Theater 3000. And I would be one of the silhouettes. And I would watch... <laughs> I would watch movies with famous political figures. I still want to do this with <laughs> this Putin. Would be really good. I really do. Because I was going to watch. We were going to do this together. I had suggested this. Gorbachev has been in extremely ill health. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to watch Dr. Strangelove. We would watch Bedtime for Bonzo. Because <laughs> he was yeah. not entirely familiar with... The Reagan oeuvre. Right. So that we would watch one of my favorite movies, King's Row, with the immortal line, Where's the Rest of Me? <laughs> um, yeah, we'd watch movies together. And we'd watch some Tarkovsky. Oh, yeah. Imagine watching Stalker with <laughs> Mikhail Gorbachev. Come on. <laughs> I'd even, I'd love to do it, but I'd watch it. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you think Putin might do it with me? If I could only find Putin's favorite movies. <laughs> well, it's definitely not the third Rambo. Definitely, because that's dedicated to the Mujahideen fighters. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> you don't know. It's There's true. There's always surprises here. It's true. That's very true. <laughs> Are there any other world leaders you would want to sit next to and talk film about? Any of them. Any of them? Any of them. Okay. You know, maybe Donald Trump would do it with me. He's gotten, it's interesting. He seems different then than he does now. Yeah. I mean, he's. It's palpable. Yeah. As if somehow some layer of restraint has been eroded away, Mm -hmm. leaving some core id to function. No, definitely. Now the little man in your brain who tells you, you know, 
that's not such a good idea. It could be misinterpreted by others, and you could be seen to be an asshole. <laughs> I think you better just not do that. <laughs> that's gone. <laughs> that guy left. <laughs> no, that guy's not there anymore. <laughs> He's on vacation. <laughs> Yes, it's true. He ain't coming back either. Probably. What's he gonna do? The guy doesn't really want to listen. No, he's not a listener. Mm. No, definitely yeah. not. Donald, you're such a good listener. <laughs> so much enjoy having you talk at me and threaten me. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> Before we wrap up, even though this is a one, this is a really wonderful line of. Uh, thought and questioning i guess do you feel like do you feel like there is a way out is there possibly a way out of you know this weird cycle that we've gotten into where you know like i was saying before it's sort of like you can you can have someone at a debate being like stop and frisk was proven unconstitutional no it wasn't yes it was no it wasn't is there is there a way out of this weird cycle that we're in or is it just gonna get worse because these people have been emboldened by having someone like donald trump uh just say whatever I'd like to sound an optimistic note, but I am uncomfortable with optimism. Mm -hmm. I have my own version of the glass half empty and half full, the optimist and the pessimist. My version is there's the glass half empty, the glass half full, and the glass half full with poison. <laughs> I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> How is it going to get better? I mean, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> How could it possibly get better? Everything gets crazier and crazier and crazier. And the endless commentary. My son, who's clearly a lot smarter than I am, said that he thinks that commentary is destroying the world. It's true. I sit glued to the television Particularly when there's the Trump supporters, there's yeah. five women. Have you seen that screen? Five women. Like maybe three of them are Trump supporters and two are um, Clinton supporters. And they go on and on and on. And it's so deeply satisfying because you think, ah, the end is nigh. This can't last much longer, can it? <laughs> It's really over with. We're done for. Borges wrote this short story where, I'm sure it's apocryphal, but I like to believe it's true. There was this medieval sect called the Hysteriones, and they abandoned themselves to a wild debauch. They believed there was a fixed number of sins that had to be committed before the second coming, uh -huh. so they should get down. And so they just abandon themselves to a wild debauch to see how many sins they could commit as quickly as possible to bring about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. That's where we are now. Okay. <laughs> I think there's a technical term for it. We're fucked. <laughs> well, Is that okay? That's excellent. <laughs> and then you just drop the mic and you walk out of the room. <laughs> so Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. 
Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.